The existentialist philosopher and novelist Albert Camus wrote about ethics, a man without ethics is a wild beast loosed upon this world. And while I think we'd be hard-pressed to find someone who denies the importance of ethics, the practice and application of ethics can be tricky, especially when related to cultures or disciplines in which we don't have as much knowledge. Specifically, I'm thinking of the world of science and medicine. Conversation about right actions or right decisions are often clouded by conflicting analyses of data points between voices whose degrees and expertise seem well beyond and well above capacities of average folks like myself. How do I talk about whether or not a procedure or medication is good or bad when I don't understand the first thing about the medicine or the science behind it? Meanwhile, ethical decisions are being made regularly in those spaces, sometimes by folks who don't consider those decisions matters of ethics at all. Jennifer Lal is the founder and the president of the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network. Her work means diving headfirst into the oftentimes murky and turbulent waters where science, religion, and politics all mix together, a place most folks quite honestly would rather avoid or even run from. But as I think you'll learn in my conversation with Jennifer Lal, She's not most folks. Check it out. What I'd love to get to you is instead of asking you like, hey, what is the what is the CBC? What is the Center for Bioethics and Culture? Like describe the thing. Get me here to like, you're in college, you have dreams, because you didn't go to school. The, as best I know, you didn't go to school just thinking like, I'm just going to go to school and figure it out. You had some thoughts, you had some intentions. Right. This wasn't necessarily on the radar to do exactly what you're doing now. Absolutely not. So get me from your initial intention vocationally, what you were thinking and dreaming and planning on doing and how you ended up, I don't know, like not necessarily sidetracked, but sort of like called elsewhere, pushed mm -hmm, elsewhere. Mm -hmm. How did this happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, a, a side note is when I was 10 years old, I spent one year in the hospital. I had a very common childhood disease, but I'm old. And back when I had it, they didn't really have any cures for it. And they were too afraid to send me home. So I lived in the hospital for one year. So I became quite fascinated with medicine and hospitals yeah. and doctors and nurses. And I thought as a young girl, I was going to go to medical school and be a doctor. And I specifically wanted to be a hematologist because I had a blood disease huh. that required me to spend that length of time in the hospital. Then I got into high school and I probably partied too much and I wasn't really a serious student. And I went, yeah, medical school, that's kind of like, you know, 18 years of my life right. and a lot of studying. So I took the easy way out. <laughs> Sorry, nurses out there. And I went to nursing school, <laughs> you know, because it still sort of scratched right. my itch to be in, in, in medical field yeah. life. Um, and so I went to nursing school right. and I uh, graduated from nursing school at a time. It's kind of like cyclical, like teachers. So when I graduated from nursing school, it was really hard to find a job because huh. there wasn't a nursing shortage. And Which so is I, now. Exactly. It just changes all the time, you know, yeah. and I happened to hit the nursing, you know, arena at the time when there was just no jobs. Um, so I sort of picked up, you know, I worked at San Clemente General Hospital down mm -hmm. in San Clemente because that's where I went to nursing school um, in the ER and the adult ICU. Um, sometimes I'd work in the OR recovery, just picking up shifts, getting getting work. Uh, when I came back to the Bay Area where my parents were living, um, 
I got a job at the University of California, San Francisco, but the only opening was in pediatric intensive care unit. And I Which was scared. not what you were thinking. No, of, I mean, it was I the job that was there. I just thought I want to get my foot in the door. It's a big, you know, I wanted to be in a university academic hospital. That's kind of where all the, the, you know, cutting edge, cool stuff is happening. I thought as a young 20 something year old nurse, and I thought I'll just take that job, get my foot in the door. And then right. as a position opens, I could make a lateral move. But I fell in love with pediatrics. And, you know, in pediatrics, um, it's great because you see brand new babies all the way up to 16. So yeah. you get a really wide variety of cases, you know, yeah. kids from trauma, kids that are born with bad things, um, kids that get cancer, yeah. kids that get in car accidents, you know, so you, it's a really great um, broad field. Yeah. But it's still that really cutting edge kind of stuff. So I got to see some pretty cool stuff. Like and cutting we, edge because stuff that's happening with kids isn't research as much like what makes it cutting edge well because you're all you know it's like science and you're always trying something new hmm. you know you have a, a baby that's born at 28 weeks and then you have a baby born at 27 weeks and you have a baby born at 26 weeks right. or you have a new surgery that you go like i worked at uc san francisco with the doctor who did the first surgery took the baby out of the womb did the surgery put the baby back in the womb let the baby uh, finish its nine months inside the womb so that the defect was repaired repaired before the baby was even born, which solved, you know, basically saved this baby's life. You know, we opened up the first pediatric bone marrow transplant unit back when we started doing bone marrow transplants to solve pediatric, you know, blood cancers. Yeah. So all that kind of new stuff that's just kind of coming down, which was really cool. But of course, it has all the ethical dilemmas. So that's that, of, Is that where you started running into those kinds of questions? Yeah. You know, should we do this? Should we... Are we... Are are we playing God? Huh. You know, is this is this um, a dignified way to treat this little child? Was there at so what point do you say enough's enough and let yeah. a child go? You know, those are just all the and you know you're dealing with parents that have to make these decisions for their children, and mm. then these parents have to go home and spend the rest of their life living with, did I make the right decision? Was there a moment? In that moment, was there a, is there a case or maybe a couple of cases where you remember like here's something we ran like. Here's something you ran, we ran up against that you remember thinking like, wow, that's actually, th there are some ethical questions here that went unanswered. Where there's, like, do you have a particular story or two about that time? It was like, hey, this is the thing they came up with. Was there like a, a procedure or a kind of treatment that you, that you came up against regularly and thought, I don't know, we haven't really thought all, all the way through this. Like, what, what were you seeing that, that caused that? That's one part. And the other part of it is like, do you think that would have happened if it wasn't kids? Yeah. Well, I have tons of stories. I mean, my kids used to love when I'd come home from work. Mom, tell us stories because they all want to know what happened at the yeah. hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I was at the bedside of the first pediatric AIDS patient we diagnosed. I was working at UC San Francisco at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic in San Francisco, where the debate was, do we shut the bathhouses down? Do we let the bathhouses be open? What do we do? I went to work every night. A male nurse that I, you know, a colleague, a friend had just been diagnosed with this scary disease. And whoa, one day we're at the bedside and it's a newborn baby wow. who's born to a mom and a dad who has this disease back then that we thought was just with gay men. And all the, how did this baby get this disease? Right. And all the things that were happening within this husband and wife relationship that weren't um, forthcoming and sort of, you know, the ethics around um, huh. just sort of awkward pauses when you just sort of yeah. tell a parent or parents your child has been born with, hmm, we're not sure how they got this. Can you explain? So, um, you know, I dealt with 
organ transplantation. I still remember bringing a little boy into the operating room who was still connected to life support, so technically alive, knowing that the minute he got in that operating room, all the life support was going to be withdrawn and he was going to be cut open and have all of his organs harvested and wondering, is this okay? Mm. You know, it kind of felt a little vulturish, you know, picking over a freshly deceased carcass, but intentionally keeping somebody alive so that you, so that you could preserve organs, the organs, right. you know, and those are, um, and seeing parents have to make that difficult decision yeah. to sign that document that gives permission to take their son into the operating room, knowing that when he comes out of the operating room, he's not going to be um, the same little boy that they sent in. So, yeah. And then just watching parents have to sign informed consent, you know, a lot of kids with cancer. Yeah. And, you know, these are heavy diagnoses and you're giving them this and we're going to put your child on all these kind of drugs and therapies and they might kill kill them. They, they're going to make them really, really, really sick. Yeah. You know, do you want to do that? And, and if you don't, your child's going to die. started but you kind of caught this um sort of like a gap between the like there's like, like a series of at least potential questions that weren't being asked about here's the situation here are here are the things we can do you started you started paying attention to this kind of large gap between that between those two things because between here's what we can do and here's your situation it, are, are these ethical layers of like well what will be right Right. So parents were having to make decisions or people were having to make decisions, doctors, nurses making decisions based on possibility and probability rather than like moving through the ethic of the thing. Yeah, but I don't think you can separate the, the facts and the data from the ethics of it, too. OK, go ahead. So how to sort of weave all that in, because you can just rattle off statistically if you have your face with such and such a diagnosis. And we know that, you know, these kinds of treatments have 5 percent, 10 percent success, right. um, you know, and knowing that parents always want to grasp onto any little bit of hope. Yeah. You know, even if you say it's a 10 percent chance of success and a 90% chance of failure when faced with losing your child, right. you know, you're going to take that 10% and hope that that's where you land. You're one of the lucky 10%. Mm. However, um, knowing that parents do at some point have to say enough's enough because they see their child suffer, 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 mm. and, and giving them permission without data to show, you know, 75% of parents who lose their child will just be fine, you know, yeah. you know that they're still yeah. going to have to go home and live with that decision. Yeah. Um, and in the middle of all this, I had an adult faith conversion. Hmm. So I started... While you, were, while you were working this stuff out, while you were running this stuff? While I was being was a nurse? Related? No. <laughs> well, I guess they were. I Maybe, mean, because, you know, I mean, I don't know. It wasn't like plan A and plan B and they just sort of, you know, came together. But, you know, they were they were they were unrelated. But yes, they were related. Yeah. How's that for ambiguity? It's totally fine. <laughs> I, think, I think it's how I feel. Actually. Yeah. These are related. But I yeah, but it why. was interesting because I have like my 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 nurse before I was a Christian and then my nurse after I was a Christian and how that sort of changed the way I saw things. Mm. However, I mean, a, a lot of things stayed the same. I mean, clinically, I still practiced my nursing the same. Right. Um, I still delivered 
delivered the best care. Right. Um, I still cared about my patients. I still had a strong sense of justice and doing yeah. right by people. Um, but it gave me an a additional um, level of compassion hmm. and and hope. In you know, I mean, I was able to scoop little dead children out of the bed when parents were just rock stone solid because they just didn't know what to do and just yeah. throw the child in their arms and say sit down and hold and kiss and love your baby yeah would you like me to take pictures things that i'd never thought about before you know with the the you know the soul leaving the body and this child dying and yeah anyway and in the midst of that the seed of a dream of a thing for you started that now is called the center for bioethics and culture yeah. what like how, how like you decide to leave nursing do you do you start like a project in nursing like how do you get from there to here well my husband had a similar um conversion to faith about a year or so after i did and he felt called to seminary huh. so he went to seminary and i went followed along, as families do, with our then four children in tow, yeah. and thought, I'm just going to, you know, get some side hustle jobs at the local hospital while he's a seminary student. I started working at the emergency room at Highland Park Hospital in the suburbs of Chicago, right. taking care of the Chicago Bulls when they'd be injured and they come into the ER, and remembering when Michael Jordan brought his son in to get stitches because he busted his chin open, just awesome. doing ER nursing, picking up shifts yeah. while, while Dan, my husband, was studying seminary. And I thought, oh, I'm going to be here on this campus. They've got some classes I could take. And I took an introduction to bioethics class. Hmm. And that rocked my world. I got my calling. I went, this is what I'm going to do. Because it integrated yeah. medicine, science, technology, theology, law, policy. It all, it's like, it's this one big roll up. You know, I say bioethics is a conversation. Yeah. And it's multidisciplinary. And, and that's what nursing is. Or any, you know, so many of our jobs. It's dealing with all levels of people's lives. Yeah. You know, what they believe, what they think, how they live, you know what's just, what's right, what's right. good. And so I pursued a master's in bioethics and my graduate thesis project was founding the Center for Bioethics and Culture because I hmm. didn't want to write another paper. You know, two years of graduate school, you just write papers. All done writing. And I said, yeah. can I, instead of doing a thesis, can I launch a nonprofit? And they said, sure. Wow. So that was my graduate thesis project was founding the Center for Bioethics and Culture. What did it look like at the time? Um, it looked like back then a uh, fax machine. Um, <laughs> old dial-up internet that i would like go get up in the morning that, i love that it starts with the fax machine that's a, that's so i remember good. going down and turning on my computer remember the old dial-up you'd hear that oh yeah you know, yeah. i'd go up and make my coffee because by the time i got my coffee and my computer and i'd sit by my that. phone i had a phone a little fax machine my computer and think well what am i gonna do yeah so i started cold calling people really hi i'm jennifer lawl who who are you calling um, mostly i called pastors because my and early vision was to be sort of a, a support to churches that were dealing with end-of-life decisions in their congregations, couples dealing with infertility, people, you know, should we get grandma in the nursing home or should we let grandma die? You know, just trying to, to help. insert yourself in, this, in the conversations w with people and in cultures that you'd figure, or hope at least, were interested, engaged, trying to answer these questions, but didn't have the 
the training or the background yeah. or the science knowledge. And I, I was a brand new Christian, so they're the worst, right? Because we're just on fire. <laughs> we just want everybody to get excited about what we've learned. <laughs> you know? I mean, you're, and I've just come out of graduate <laughs> so school good. where I right. just had so much knowledge shoved shoved in me, and as my daughters like to say, like so much Bible shoved out and shoved into me. Yeah. So I was just really excited about, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna serve the church. Yeah. And I'm gonna help the church navigate. You know, when I graduated from. Um, graduate school, Dolly the sheep had just been cloned. Oh yeah. George Bush was fussing with everybody about embryonic stem cell and human cloning research. Yeah. Bill Joy, you know, the big scientist down at Sun Microsystems, had just written fascinating ar- article in Wired magazine, "Why the Future Doesn't Need Us Anymore," sort of sounding the alarms around artificial intelligence and yeah. nanotechnology and all these the, questions about the, the what value of human life and you know what should we do to humans and what can we do to them and who is human and so i was just going to you know be a resource and i was just how'd it go so, um it went horrible <laughs> they were like um um well oh thank you we'll call you if we need you and um very quickly i was getting calls to do interviews on npr i did Ina jaffe all things considered fresh air with terry gross I was, willie brown who was then the mayor of san francisco right. invited me to speak at his stem cell symplo- symposium with honorable george schultz who was yeah. you know i mean and it was like oh god's not calling me to help the church because the church isn't interested <laughs> I do want to like kind of follow the trajectory of of the CBC, but one of the one of the historical elements, as you and I have talked off and on, is that that hasn't changed all that dramatically with like church people, right? And like the ability to, or not the ability to, but the, sort of the like the interest in, like so those calls, hey, we'll call you when we need you, yeah, that you don't get that call. That they, they, those folks they never need me. They never. <laughs> and it, it, so it, then we'll come back just a couple of times. Like, so in one sense, like, well, you know, quote unquote, they never need you. The other side of the coin is like, yeah, they do. And you know that because yeah. the conversation is really ill-informed a lot. What is that? Like, why, why is there, why is there such a gap? Like, it's not even necessarily a resistance. It's just, it's just sort of, cause it's not like pushback. Hey, we're not interested in what you're doing. We're freaked out by it. It's like, we don't see a need here. Right. What is that? Do you know? Ignorance? I don't know. I mean, that's not, that sounds not very charitable. Um, l- lack of, I don't know. I mean, to me, I, I sit around and go, and this, this will probably sound prideful. I think, gosh, I'm dealing with like foundational things about, you know, human life. Right. You know, can we make it? Can we freeze it? Can we kill it? Can we clone it? Can we, you know, chop it up? Um and so I don't, I don't know. I, I think it, it requires thoughtfulness. And we, we live in a time where people don't want to have to think hmm. uh, or not too hard. Or, yeah. Everything gets, you know, there's always like something more urgent, you know, that tyranny of the urgent. Yeah. You know, there's something always more like more important right now. Yeah. Um, is that sort of maybe a lot of it is that there's like these issues, they're not even issues, these realities. Yeah. They're not like you're not going to come across that if you know if you are pastoral, we'll just name it. If you're like pastor guy, right in your office, the stuff that's coming to the your 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 world isn't 
you know, people aren't coming through wondering necessarily about the you know, like the freezing of eggs or what have you. But occasionally a couple does come through and they are having a hard time getting pregnant and they're talking about IVF. Like that you would I guess I would, like maybe that's not happening enough in those conversations that you would end up being a resource to churches or to, to faith leaders. You could say like, hey, we don't really have the, the, the scientific background to answer some of these questions about what might or might not be true about it. Is yeah. it just not happening enough? Like what? Because what, it's not like it's not happening. I don't know. I mean, I think if you have a busy, full, vibrant congregation and you have all age groups, you know, you have people that are getting diagnosed with illness, you know, diseases, yeah. um, facing, you know, end of life kind of issues. You have people, like you say, that are struggling with conceiving or getting pregnant, having a baby. Um, yeah, may, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm not needed. <laughs> <laughs> but then at the same time you're so you know terry gross and you're having conversations there is this like you know you were filling a, a void for folks you're like hey there's someone who can speak to these issues right. and the ball kind of got rolling there yeah. and then what happened how did how did things progress from there yeah we we sort of i think what really we have it's like all organizations you sort of plateau and then you something big happens and you go yeah you know up you go and you know for us one of the first things early on was we did we invited peter singer to come to oakland california and we rented the henry j kaiser auditorium uh, auditorium and we did the debate of the century what does it mean to be human and for those who don't know who peter singer is peter singer's bioethicist at princeton he has very provocative controversial ideas you know he argues that we should do uh, medical scientific testing research on disabled human beings, not healthy animals. He's sort of a big founder in the animal rights movement. Right. Um, he argues that if you can, he's in favor of abortion, and therefore you ought to be able to terminate your child's life up to the first year, because why would you stop within the womb if a child is born with something terrible? And so he's a total utilitarian ethic, um, ethics uh, professor. And that debate just sort of put us, you know, kind of on that map. How did the um, night go? Uh, it was, can I say shit show? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still remember, um, like, the police came. We were all. <laughs> you, um, the cops, you the, threw a party and the, the cops came. The cops came. There was so much protesting um, with the local disability rights community yeah. that was mad at us and mad at Singer because they don't like Singer because he doesn't have a, you know soft spot in his heart for disabled people right they were mad at us for giving him a platform um the the conversation the, that in the room we had to remove people during the debate yeah. i mean i still remember our ushers having to wheel disabled people out of the auditorium because they were we wouldn't stop yelling and screaming yeah. so it was very disruptive um the people who managed the kaiser auditorium were like why didn't you tell us that this was going to be controversial we would have gotten extra security and that's i funny. said i told you peter singer from princeton's coming yeah you know, do, your research. do your research that's not <laughs> you on me know? i mean yeah I, you signed the contract you let us rent the venue um so it was you know it was quite provocative and we yeah. we videotaped the whole thing so we sold dvds back then yeah and that, and then our next probably big splash was um, releasing the film Exploitation. Right. Again, a, you know, a film that we shot literally on a weekend. Yeah. And in four weeks, we had DVDs, and we won Best Documentary Award at the California Independent Film Festival. And we yeah. went, we won? We must yeah. have read that that letter five times. Thinking, <laughs> to ensure. <laughs> I think it's we won. 
the singer event. I um, mean, the, the, to some degree, I mean, like the the shock at at um, and this is part of what I is part of what you and I've talked about a few times. Like, the, there's the, there's sort of like the shock at the at the extreme thought, right? Of right. like, you know, singer will voice this notion, this ethical notion about the value of life after birth, up to the first year, and. It all it, it like it seems I, I don't know if I'm gonna get this 100 percent right so you can correct me if I'm, but like it's almost as if it's it sounds so extreme and so way outside that it, it's dismissive like oh we just kind of push it off the side but if we don't pay attention my take and I think it's yours if I'm not paying attention if I don't understand what singer's up to then I don't recognize that this this utilitarian notion of the value of human life actually is woven by degrees into vast 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 swaths of human behavior and the teaching into like the way people teach kids in, in any form of school but also like in churches and the way we you know value certain types of leadership skills but this notion of utilitarianism if you don't know what it is if you don't hear it like fully fleshed out which is what Singer just has the courage to do. Say, hey, this is actually how we think anyway, so let's do this. If you don't know that, then you don't recognize that in your own life, so you can't combat it, which is part of why you put that on stage and say, let's put this up here, actually have a conversation, hear the points, and then see what kind of counterpoints we have. Did you feel like that came, like, I mean, was it just the shit show? But I, I feel like it actually went pretty well in terms of, like, exposing that conversation, exposing sort of the underbelly of utilitarian ethics for people that went well? Yeah, no, I, 100%. I mean, it was pretty rambunctious, you know, getting started. It was right. a rocky, rocky start. But then people settled down and we had a good debate. Yeah. Um, and, and that's something I think you and I both like. We, we don't like to just talk to people that we agree with. We like to run around and listen to other people. We wanted to give Singer a platform. Yeah. Um, we wanted people to hear from his own mouth what he what he thinks and believes versus me telling you, you know, Peter Singer believes. Right. Oh, y'all know, you're, he doesn't really believe that. Well, no, yes, he Actually, does. Here, we'll let, <laughs> let him here's say the, it for you. Here's the tape. Um, so, uh, and, you know, it was back, back in a day, not like today, when we could actually you know, civilly disagree and have very strong differences of opinions and have a good old fashioned yeah. debate. And so a lot of what you've done since then in film and an event is to, is to pull out, um, they're not even necessarily, like, this is what I'm trying to get to before. They're not even necessarily extremes. They're relatively established patterns of thought and behavior. Things are really happening that seem extreme. So like the, the, you know, the woman who's, who's, um, uh, in in a couple of your uh, of your of your films, you know, women who are suffering like rather adverse effects, adverse effects from procedures that they weren't warned might have adverse effects, and and the effects are terrible. But that story is not being told, so you'll kind of pull something like like that out, put it on the table, and say, hey, we need to have a conversation about this as well. That does stir. I mean, it's part of what you're doing is you're trying to stir at least a conversation where like you don't get to just have you know whatever you want in terms of ethics and procedures without actually dealing with all the effects has the culture changed enough in the last like 15 to 16 years that like is it too volatile so what happens with the singer event and the kind of vitriol i mean i don't even know if we could do an event like that now without like real i mean is that like is it too volatile now can we still have those conversations you know, I think two things. One is um, 
it's all this no platforming. You know, you have all, you know, like our mutual friend, Julie Bindle. Yeah. How many times has Julie been invited and then uninvited? Because then they find out who she is. Right. And we're going to uninvite her. And for, for, for listeners, she, uh, Julie Bindle was on season two. But if you didn't catch that, can you give a little breakdown of like who Julie is uh, as a as a as a journalist and who she is in relationship to your work? Yeah, Julie is a, a journalist based in the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. and she writes a lot on um, issues around uh, prostitution, exploitation of women. And so she and I pal around a lot in our work together um, to oppose surrogacy um, as another exploitative practice against women. Right. But she's a serious, you know, prominent UK journalist. She's a, a, a lesbian. Uh, she would identify as a radical feminist, not the she likes to say the fun kind. <laughs> she doesn't. <laughs> but um, she she gets, you know, no platform. So we have this environment right now where we just w- will say, oh, my gosh, I found out who this person is. Well, we can't have them come. Right. So you're just, you know, you're just disinvited or, or excluded to the party. And, and yeah, I do think we've had we've had a real loss of civility and the ability to actually just still like people that we strongly disagree with. You know, Peter Singer's a really nice man. Yes. I mean, I picked him up at the airport. I drove him in my car. Yeah. He, he's, he's a very charitable man. He gives, he, he told me that most of his honorarium that I pay him goes to Oxfam, one of his organizations he gives a lot of money to. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a deeply compassionate man. He has an amazing love of animals. You know, so there's so many things to like about him. Yeah. Even though he has some, you know, I would say some pretty bad other ideas. He's a decent human being. Yeah. And, um, you know, I wanted to sell my car when I sold it for more and say, Peter Singer rode this car. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that should increase the value of my yeah. Ford Taurus. <laughs> and it might have. <laughs> But the ability to do that yeah. uh, is part of what makes it possible for you to do what you do. Because you know, I was at uh, the the Ramsey Institute dinner, uh, which we talk about that. But it's a it's a fundraising dinner that has that has tied ties to the, the Center for Biotechnology and Culture. The vast majority of the room are people who politically would be on the other end. If there is an actual spectrum, who knows anymore? Yeah. Would be on the other end of the spectrum from someone like Julie. And there you are in a room in which, like, Julie is not just someone who's you've kind of been around with, but you're in like long term relationship. You guys, so that she's partnered with you guys. She like like you have to actually be in a place in which you are, like you're not just um, I should say you're open to not even open to you're inviting of maybe this is what I'm trying to get to. What is it about the work that you're doing that allows for that? In other words. You know, if you are someone who considers themselves a leftist and which Julie would consider herself f- far further left politically, socially, a lot of the people in the room at uh, uh, at the dinner would consider themselves far further right. But they find this, you know, not even casual, but a relatively passionate place of work and purpose with the CBC. What is it about what you're doing that allows for that? Yeah, I think it's it gets back to the fact that it is what we're doing is a conversation. I mean, mm. We all have a stake yeah. in the issues that I care most deeply about. You know, we all have a vested interest in, you know, what what does the next generation look like? You know, and um, so and and I just I I like people. 
Yeah. I care deeply about people. I, I like to be around fun people, interesting people, people that are doing, you know, good work. Yeah. Um, and, and I still remember, um, one of my professors, you know, that people aren't targets. They're not projects. They're mm. friends. I mean, I have a lot of really good friends. I was at the Heritage Foundation in May in D.C., probably one of the most conservative think tanks in the United States. Yeah. And I invited my colleague, Melissa Farley, who you met here yes. with Julie, who's a lesbian feminist, um, very far left politically. And my gay friend, Gary Powell in the United Kingdom, who's a gay man, who's a conservative. And he's a uh, political, elected political official in the conservative party in the United Kingdom. Yeah. And, you know, there the three of us were at the Heritage Foundation. And I think I was as shocked to be at the Heritage Foundation <laughs> as they were. Kind of like, how did this happen? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the three of us just got up there and we just did our thing. And we What had thing a, did you do? We, um, we spoke against surrogacy. Um, and the exploitation exploitation of women. Melissa Farley gave an, a, an amazing um, uh, uh, presentation on the parallels between uh, surrogacy and prostitution. Yeah, and you know it's just a a great um, parsing of the language that we use when it, when we come to how we speak about women um, that are exploited. Uh, and Gary made a very strong, compelling case um, why uh, surrogacy is not an LGBT right. You know, the gay men don't have a right to have a child um, by means of using women's bodies so that they can procure eggs and rent wombs to have babies. And I was invited to speak on the medical risk because of my, of my nursing medical background. And so the three of us, we just had a blast. And we went out and had a delicious dinner in D.C. that night. And we walked all over the mall and took pictures of ourselves in front of Lincoln Memorial. Yeah. And, just, and, and we had a great lunch afterwards with the staff at the Heritage Foundation who were just very polite and yeah. welcoming and just a real good meeting of the minds of where we can all agree and how we can move forward. It's almost as if it's possible. <laughs> it's <almost good. laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. Um, and I think that those are the kind of parties that Jesus would have thrown. I agree. You know, and, and we all had a great time. And, and these are these are friendship. These people are not my projects. I've not co-opted them because I'm trying to abolish surrogacy in the United States or around the world. I'd like to have that happen. And if yeah. people want to join me as true friends, co-laborers, co-belligerent You're not laborers. using them to accomplish a the thing. They're in it with you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I love these people to the death. You know, I love yeah. them to death. You're not all over the map. You don't have just kind of like we're we're into whatever comes up. You have some you have some focuses that are particular. Can you give us a a a, a, a kind of a glimpse at like what are the things you are focusing on? What's your take in each space? Like what like what's your hope and intention and dream in each space? And how is that going? Yeah. So the organization tagline is our shared human future because we really are working in the space of biotechnology that that preserves and protects our human future and the yeah. beauty and the diversity of the human future. So we are very involved in what we call issues around the making of human life. You know, we can now make human life yes. in the, the laboratory. And so whether that be through third-party conception, egg, sperm, you know, surrogacy, whether it just be through straight-up assisted reproduction using husbands and wives, eggs and sperm, whether that be through the whole CRISPR, gene editing, um, designing babies, the more kind of high-tech kind of stuff, 
looking toward the future, synthetic egg and synthetic sperm and artificial wombs, you know, we're already doing that in animals, you know, will we become totally obsolete where we won't even need human beings anymore to create new human beings because it will all become just this technological process. So in that whole space, we are um, critical of technology. We are cheerleaders of what we would consider good ethical technology hmm. um, advances. And just, again, trying to keep the conversation going because laws are being made or, you know, practices are happening with or without us. And how much can we, as a shared human future, participate in the conversation, what we want that to look like, yeah. you know, in the next 100, 200 years from now. One of the things it seems like you're facing, and I'd love to talk about like, the obstacles you're up against, but one of the things it seems like you face is in, in the same way as happens with uh, with like white culture um, and uh, and and like non-white struggle, is that it, it's just because you don't know doesn't mean it's not real. Or just because it doesn't bother you right now doesn't mean, kind of two things, doesn't mean that it's not unjust and it doesn't mean that it's not affecting you. So that like what's, you know, from, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, like the lack of consciousness in, in dominant white culture about what was happening in non-white spaces didn't mean at all that it was unjust. It was unjust. And it had an adverse effect on whole neighborhoods, whole cities, whole nations. So it is affecting you. Similar to this, like it's just because you don't know, just because you'll say, you'll say CRISPR and like some of my listeners will be like, is that a cereal? Like, what am I, <laughs> what the hell is CRISPR? Well, just because you don't know, just because you're unaware or it seems like it's not touching your life doesn't mean it's not real. You're sort of in that space as well where like the temperature of the water is rising around people. They don't necessarily know why or where it's coming from. That's one of the obstacles you face. Like, what else makes it hard for you to do your work? Hmm. We have no competition. And that makes it hard because there's nobody else trying to get people to talk about these things or to think about these things. Huh. So when you think about people that are working, say, with orphans. Right. I mean, you could probably, without thinking, rattle off 10 or 15 big, huge NGO organizations that are all trying to help orphans or clean water or, you yeah. know, save the planet kind of stuff. You know, there's a lot of people out there. Doing, there's nobody really in this space. And I, I always caution myself saying nobody because there's somebody out there who's going to say, Jennifer, we're out here. And I'll be like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to like, you know, but we don't really have, you can't rattle off. Who else besides the Center for Bioethics and Culture is really out there in the culture saying, wake up people, come on, come to the party, let's talk about these things. So that is, I think, some people, sometimes you say, well, that's good, you don't have any competition. But on the other hand, if you don't have any competition, you're just one little tiny voice trying to get people to wake up. You know, to Which then it makes it difficult, like, if you're the one tiny voice, you're easier to sort of dismiss, because it seems like everyone else is in agreement. Or these aren't important issues. Or they're not important issues. Or they're already resolved. We're yeah. already, we've already, this has already been solved and we've got the sort of the Luddite holdout over here who's saying, hey, we don't, you know, we're, we're not going to, we're going to use a typewriter still and I've got my landline, which is not what you're doing. It just seems like that because there aren't other voices. So then it, like, you know, IVF is, is maybe the, the prime example of the thing that pops up regularly without a whole truckload of conversation about it. Friend, let's say, you know, a friend comes to you uh, um, and says, you know, my, my husband and I 
uh, we've decided to like we're gonna we've had a difficult time getting pregnant. We're we we've started the you know this procedure IVF and and what are the questions you ask interpersonally? What are the, like what should be someone be thinking about that they may not be thinking about yet? Yeah, I think I always ask people, have you gotten a really good diagnosis? You know, if you really got you and your husband both, you know, your wife and you gotten a real good, what's going on here? Why can't this couple conceive what's really going on? Because what I've seen in my um, travels is a lot of people, they try three, four or five months, they don't get a baby. They go to the doctor and they go, oh, go see the fertility doctor you know, because we're just sort of impatient. So I always encourage couples first to make sure you go to a really good doctor who knows fertility medicine um, and get a really good diagnosis. So you know what you're up against because, you know, people either can't conceive because there's something wrong with the wife, there's something wrong with the man, or we have no reason why we can figure out why this couple shouldn't get pregnant. Everything seems to be working just fine, but it's just not happening. So those are, I think, rule number one is really get a good diagnosis and then sort of look at what your options are and what can be done. You know, for me, um, if it's if it's a woman fertility issue, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff that can really be done to kind of help women try to conceive. Right. You know, whether they have endometriosis or block fallopian tubes or their ovulation is a little bit wonky. Things that can be done within you know with less powerful big gun treatments. Um, similar with men some people just wait too long you know we you know we were talking earlier about um, people that we know that wait too long to have their kids and then when they're ready to finally have their kids they go oh i'm infertile i'm like no it's menopause it's not infertile it's just a normal stage of this time in your life yeah (laughs) there's nothing wrong with you um but you know you know the the reality is is the average take-home ivf baby is a six-figure baby you know do we really want to be spending that kind of money um, and the data is overwhelming that most IVF cycles fail. I mean, 75% of all IVF cycles fail. Yeah. So there's a, there's a big money sinkhole there. You know, have almost a million frozen human embryos in America alone. I mean, just get your mind around that number. Um, because we make so many because we know most of them don't, don't become babies. And so we just make a bunch and tuck them in the freezer and say, well, we'll use them you know, the next time when this one doesn't work. Um, so the reality is, is that um, some people just won't get children the old-fashioned way. I mean, that's sort of what I talk about in the new book we were chatting about earlier. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe there's something other planned for you. There's a lot of things that we don't get that we want in life. And we can be sad about it. We can be mad about it. And all of those are legitimate feelings. Yeah. But maybe there's something else um, that's in store for you. If you can't conceive. As a sort of a side note, I don't, I don't want to take us way off the trail, but let's say, you know, your eggs are, you know, you, you, you know, yeah, the, the frozen eggs, the, the eggs in the freezer. Who, whose are those? Who owns those? Well, technically you do. Oh, really? You, you own your eggs. You own your, your um, embryos if you have fertilized them. Legally. Or if you've frozen your sperm, you own your sperm. Unless you've given it to a, a sperm bank or an egg bank. And then, then you, of course, have waived your rights away because you've been been given money. Right. So you've sold them, so that then the clinic owns them. But if you're a, a woman and those are your eggs that you're going to use for your own babies, those are your eggs until you decide to, you know, release them. Got it. Yeah. Um, 
talk about surrogacy. You're you're uh, you're talking about the presentation made recently at uh, um, at the Heritage Foundation, which articulates to some degree. I mean, the heart of the CBC's take on on surrogacy and the sort of the parallel to prostitution. Can you talk about that? Like, what? Because that's the thing. I, th- I think the first time we were here, we did an event in this space. And Julie started breaking down her take on surrogacy. And I'd never even thought about the parallels. I'd never been exposed to the... It just seemed like a really kind thing to do and a thing that was a kind of an empowerment. Uh, like of a... you know, a, like a, 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 Yeah, an empowerment of a, of a woman's life. And here's here's a way to live in... Julie brought this whole other perspective. Like what's... what's the, where's the CBC coming from with regards to surrogacy? Yeah. You know, th- for me, there's a, a million arguments I could make to try to win somebody over to be an, an abolitionist as I am. You know, my feminist friends who work in the space of prostitution, they're abolitionists. You know, if you say sex work, you know, their blood will come out of their eyes and they will want to strangle you because they don't see this as meaningful work that no woman, no little girl says, mommy, when I grow up, I want to be a sex worker or I want to be a paid surrogate. You know, I want to use my body in this way. Um, so they're they're really keen on sort of making those connections. These are both industries that rely depend on a woman's sexual body, whether it be for sexual intercourse, for sex, or whether it be her reproductive bodies for ba- for babies. Yeah. Um, so in sort of uh, the you know the feminist vernacular, it would just be sort of you know modern Handmaid's Tale stuff. You know, women are are breeders. Women are being used. Um, women are always the ones that are asked to do for others. You know, we're always asked to be the, the angels that will, you know, scrub the toilets and clean and have the babies. And, you know, it's just one more thing where women are um, asked to to give of themselves. Uh, back to my pediatric nursing days, you know, maternal child bonding is real. You know, in the hospital setting, if a woman is pregnant and she's at risk of preterm labor, we do everything to keep that baby with that mom as long as we can. We We encourage bonding before babies are born after babies are born we encourage bonding even when babies are really really sick in the hospital moms can be at that bed all the time mm-hmm. 24/7 <laughs> but in surrogacy we take that baby out of that mom's tummy and hand it to strangers and go isn't this wonderful and that baby's going what the hell where's my mother <laughs> you know what happened to that woman that i heard for 9 months and you know her smell and her voice and all that mm. and when we think it's in you know we see little children I posted a meme yesterday on Twitter and my Instagram page, and it, it was, a, a, as always, the surrogate mother's face is missing. You just see her pregnant belly, and she's holding her own two little girls' hands. And one of the little girls is holding a little um, chalkboard thing, basically saying, you know, my mom helps other people make families. And I said, this is grooming. These little two little girls, these cute little girls, they're not cut out of the picture because cute kids sell babies. You know, the, the, the image, the marketing is around, you know, wow. the, the baby, the mother's face is gone. Um, and these little girls are being groomed that this is what mommies do. They grow up and, and help other people, um, by the way, get paid to, to build families, to make families. Um, and then all the medical. I mean, a surrogate pregnancy is a much higher risk pregnancy than a natural pregnancy. And we're only seeing that now because we've been at this long enough. And so uh, you're asking a woman to risk her, her health, her life. The child is at risk or the babies that she's carrying is at risk. And it's a class issue. You know, when are you going to see People magazine with Kim Kardashian and Kanye West 
and Kim pregnant saying, yeah, I'm having a baby for an infertile poor woman in India. It's a class issue. Hmm. You know, the rich can buy. That's the other way around. The yeah. poor have children. Sorry. For, yeah, yeah. The poor. But you'll never see Kim having, children having a child kids. to give to a poor woman who yeah. can't afford to buy a surrogate. It's going to be the low income, um, you know, economically challenged people. So, you know, class issues, health issues, maternal child, building an industry again on the reproductive backs, bodies of women. Um, yeah. yeah. That's our take on it. It's good. Yeah. Um, people want to reach out. What's the best way to come and figure out what you're doing as a kind of a front door? So someone hears this and they're like, oh, um, okay. You want to take some steps into your world? What's the best way? Is there a film that they should watch of yours? Is there a film? You said the magic word. I, I did. You know, I really do. I want people to watch my films. And I think, oh, I can always go to my website and read, 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 blah, 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 blah. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. You know, but, you know, watch. All of our films are on Amazon. All of our films are on Vimeo. Most of our films are in many languages, Spanish, French, Italian, Japanese. Um, so, you know, if you just go to Amazon. If you're a Prime member, you can watch all of our films for free and watch Exploitation. Our brand new one is called Big Fertility. Um, hear from the women themselves. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, you know, I'm a big believer in let, let the people who have um, been harmed, been victimized and exploited, the survivors, you know, hear from them because their stories really are squashed in the, in the noise out there of big fertility, the industry that wants everybody to think, you know, it's, you know, all wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to this episode of the At Sea podcast. If you'd like to follow up with Jennifer Lawl and the work she's doing, you can visit her at cbc-network.org. That's just the letters C-B-C and then dash network.org. You can find me at justinmcroberts.com. And if you'd like to be part of the team of folks who makes this podcast happen, jump to patreon.com and search my name, Justin McRoberts. We would love to have you on the team. Until next time.